Welcome to another episode of Bioethics for the People. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Devin Stahl, who, according to her student reviews, should be cloned and teach all of the bioethics. And he's Tyler Gibb, who, according to his students, is best described as the goat of bioethics. Devin, it's my turn for a case. All right. I can't wait. This case is really challenging, I think, but more so because it's like emotionally provocative. Okay. Not, not that any of our cases this season haven't been emotionally provocative, but this one is, <laughs> uh, I think, particularly challenging. Okay. Ooh, that's that's a lot to say because we've had a lot of tough cases this yeah. season. But this is also one that I think is probably one of the more commonly taught in kind of introduction to bioethics courses. And I know that you teach it quite a bit and I've taught Uh it quite a bit too. So um, yeah, I'm happy to get into it. So it's the case of Willowbrook. Uh, Yes, Willowbrook. This is a good one. So you've heard of Willowbrook? Of course. Okay. So I'm going to kind of paint the picture of Willowbrook as an institution and kind of the history and kind of the dark the dark past that came out um, over the, the decades that it, it operated. Um, but, then, but then there's some interesting bioethical wrinkles and, and issues that we'll get into at the end, okay? Okay. All right. So uh, the Willowbrook School was uh, created in 1938-ish. Um, so it's in New York. It's on Staten Island. It was at, uh, an institute that was paid for and organized and, and run by the state of New York. Okay. And okay. it was created at, at a time when there was this outcry or this public interest, or maybe it was even just a um, kind of a public perception that people who had mental disabilities or uh, developmental disabilities, that the best way to care for them would be to institutionalize them. Um, So put them Mm -hmm. all in some sort of group setting and care for them all at the same time and and all in kind of the same way. Mm Mm-hmm. So this institutionalization uh, kind of movement went through, was all over the United States. Right. Many, many states across the country um, had multiple state institutions. Actually, here in Kalamazoo in Michigan, there's a, a state institution for the um, developmentally disabled folks, but now it's just a state public psychiatric hospital. Uh, I bet they called it something that we would never call it today. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which so, doesn't even need to be said. <laughs> right. And I, so I think it's, it's important at the outset to that we're going to be using terminology and language from some of the historical descriptions and accounts and stuff that's language that you would never use, I would never use in my day-to-day life. And so I just want to put that caveat that some of the language is kind of rough and can Mm -hmm. be pretty triggering. Um, And also we're going to talk about children, uh, disabled folks who are being uh, treated in really terrible ways. So just want to put Mm -hmm. that out at, at the beginning. So during World War II, this institution that was created in Staten Island had actually been taken over by the military and was a large army hospital um, operating in Staten Island during most of World War II and then kind of um, towards a few years after the World War II. And they did all types of sur- the surgeries and orthopedics there, um, a lot of uh, kind of general hospital medical care for veterans and, and people who had served um, in World War II and subsequently. So at, at, some, at one point they had 2,500-ish, 2,000, 2,500-ish soldiers, veterans being treated um, on a regular basis at this hospital. Wow. Okay. So large, um, many buildings, many um, different wings of these. It was built to house about 4,000 patients or 4,000 people. Um, so it's a large institution, sprawling, supposed to be very picturesque. Um, and actually, it's it's been taken over by uh, a state university, the state university system in New York. And so it's now being reappropriated for something else. But it's a vast campus, uh, what we'll call it. So That's typical, right? So from what I understand of the institutionalization process, there was this idea that being part of the land, um, being able to work the land and teaching people how to work the land and get and being physical was part of the rehabilitation process. So for some of the institutions, it was teaching folks like how to earn a living on their own. The idea was that they would come and get educated and then they could go back into their communities. And so you'd needed a space where that could happen. So it was a kind of very idyllic setting for these institutions. Not always, but it sounds like for this one, that's true. 
Right. So the, the setting was very much part of like the 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 ethos of the institution. Like um, like you said, uh, job training, ideally education. So there's a school component to it, and so it was a place where families who had children who they couldn't take care of for a number of reasons. Maybe it was just physical disability, like, um, like a severe case of uh, like a, a severe case of cerebral palsy or spina bifida or something like um, that's very physically debilitating. And, and many families and uh, communities struggle to provide adequate resources for, for folks like that. And so being able to have a safe place for families to kind of entrust their loved ones was a really important part of um, how they were trying to love and care for their patients. And Willowbrook was described and advertised as a very um, idyllic situation. They had all the resources, they had facilities, they had experts. And so families were eager, and there's actually a waiting list to get people into this institution. And so it was really well marketed. Mm-hmm. Uh, at first, isn't that how uh, bad stories always start? <laughs> That's right. Uh, there's this glossy, uh, it, you know, it's before the days of like a glossy brochure, but you can imagine that as like, you know, a glossy brochure of send, uh-huh. send your children. And, um, and I think it's important to say at the very beginning that families entrusted their loved ones to this institution out of really good intentions and mm-hmm. out of love. And unfortunately, uh, the funding from the state was never consistent and never su- as much as it needed to be. And it, over time, there got to be overcrowding and the constriction of resources. And eventually, uh, over a number of years, decades, it, it developed into a place that was really, really different from the living conditions that uh, these families hoped that they were entrusting people, their loved ones into. Yeah. And and people didn't tend to visit a lot, right? So maybe it wasn't obvious that things were getting worse and worse if you if if it was far away from where you lived and you didn't have the opportunity to go and visit very often. Exactly. And some of the the visitations, especially when people of leadership in the state or politicians or whatever, whenever they would come to visit these announced visits, they did a really good job of cleaning up the facility and, and making mm-hmm. it look like things were as they should be um, and not uh, not showing actually what the, the day-to-day life living situations were. And so, uh, like I said earlier, families were um, eager and looked forward to and advocated to get the children into this institution because they thought it was the best place for them. Yes. And this is where I think it's important to paint the best of intentions of families because I think it's easy to look back and say, you know, people were just dumping their children off, that they didn't care about their children. That might mm-hmm. be true of some people, but I don't think it was true for the vast majority of people. Yeah. And it, I think it would be wrong for us to assume that that was the intention of most of the folks who, who ended up there as well. And even the people who worked there um, and maybe even did some of these things or allowed some of these conditions to continue, like it's I, it's hard for me to uh, assume malice, right? So I don't mm-hmm. think that these were necessarily evil people, although uh, some of the decisions that were made are um, pretty hard to hard to justify. So the institution is running in the late 40s, in the 1950s, in the 1960s, in the 1970s. And as a military hospital, it had a really good reputation. It was kind of like the Walter Reed of that region where um, families and veterans, they would seek out care there. And over the course of the, as it transitioned into a long-term care facility for um, developmentally and physically disabled uh, individuals, children specifically, uh, the reputation definitely changed. And um, there, there were reports and rumors and allegations of mistreatment and neglect and, and stuff that uh, started percolating and started building up to the point that one of the state senators um, did an unannounced visit uh, to this institution in the the mid-1960s. So, uh, quick question, Devin. Who is your favorite Kennedy? Uh, Robert, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Which? which Oh, good. Robert. That's my favorite as well. So, Robert F. Kennedy, brother to to John F. Kennedy. So, this was, yeah, he was a state senator at the time. He went on to obviously be the attorney general and the... uh, nominee for the president for his uh, unfortunate assassination. So he went and visited Willowbrook and took along uh, reporters and kind of his aides and his whole entourage, and they did an unannounced visit. And he came away, um, I would say, shocked 
and horrified at what he saw. So I'm going to play a brief video clip of him recounting that, okay? I visited the state institutions for the mentally retarded, and I think particularly at Willowbrook that we have a situation that borders on a snake pit and that the children live in filth, that many of our fellow citizens are suffering tremendously because lack of attention, lack of imagination, lack of adequate manpower. There's very little future for the children or for those who are in these institutions. Uh, both need uh, a tremendous overhauling. I'm not saying that those who are the attendants there or the ones that run the institution are at fault. I think all of us are at fault. And uh, I think it's just uh, it's long overdue that something be done about it. Who has that accent anymore? It's just <laughs> such a perfectly... Kennedy accident accent. Yeah, I don't know anybody who speaks like that. Maybe maybe if we lived in Massachusetts or you know someplace in New England, we would hear that more often. But it is such an iconically Kennedy like phraseology and accent. Yeah. But anyway, so a snake pit, right? And yeah. and again, let's just let's just keep in mind that these are children, right? And not just yeah. These are children who are particularly uh, vulnerable to mistreatment because they're they're disabled children, right? Yeah. Uh, so horrifying. So he was horrified. Horrifying. We should be we should be horrified. We'll we'll post I'm sure links to some of the documentaries that are mm-hmm. horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so his quote is living in filth and dirt and their clothes and rags and in rooms less comfortable and cheerful than the cages in which we put animals in a zoo. Um, and so a- after this he takes this on as one is one of his primary uh, causes as a, as a as a politician as a representative of the people and um, makes a lot of I would say uh, makes a lot of noise about this but and and there's some agreements between the state and the institution and the parents uh, about improving conditions and, and getting adequate resources but it didn't actually change much um, over the subsequent several years. Yeah, uh, Robert Kennedy dies, and um, not too many years later, and ha- has moved on to different political offices. And so the issue kind of uh, it came to the spotlight for a moment, um, but then it, there wasn't really staying power. And part of that, I think, is because it was him recounting what he saw. Right, there were some photos that were distributed um, in in the media, but he wasn't able to really, I would say, really make the case or make this tell the story in a way that had as much impact as it needed to. Mm. And the Kennedys have always been big proponents of disability rights. So this sort of falls in line with kind of the whole Kennedy ethos around this. So it's interesting, but and, and interesting that it didn't win people over in the way you would have expected. Yeah. And I don't know enough about that kind of that moment in the history about what did, did Kennedy after he kind of took this on and, and saw this issue, did he, you know what what the timeline was before him going into national office, and maybe it kind of fell off of the the radar to a certain degree. But um, in let's fast forward a couple of years to 1972. Okay, so there's uh, an investigative journalist who meets with uh, who we would describe as a whistleblower now, a whistleblower okay. who worked at the uh, the Willowbrook School, and. This was a healthcare provider, and he was horrified, disgusted, outraged at the condition of these children. And he had tried to go through the the gen, the normal routes, um, avenues of advocating for the patients and making noise internally in, in the institution, advocating for change, but was ultimately unsuccessful and uh, left his position there. But he kept a key to one of the buildings. And it was Geraldo Rivera and his cameraman. Hey, I've heard of him. Yes, so Geraldo <laughs> Rivera. So Geraldo Rivera was this investigative journalist in the 1970s uh, in ABC's affiliate in the, the greater New York area. And he went there with this stolen key. It's described in the, in the, the literature as a stolen key and went in through one of the back doors of the institutions with a film crew and filmed what was going on. And I think the combination of the advocacy, kind of the change in the culture between the mid-60s and the early 70s, um, but also having video of what was going on really um, struck a nerve with uh, culturally. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it was a moment. And I'm sure the video helped. If you've seen the video, it is horrifying. It, it, it's one of the more troubling uh, videos that, that I've seen. Um, so I'm just going to play a clip of him. So this is Geraldo Rivera introducing his the, the news piece that he created. It's been more than six years since Robert Kennedy walked out of one of the wards here at Willowbrook and told newsmen of the horror he'd seen inside. He pleaded then for an overhaul of a system that allowed retarded children to live in a snake pit. But that was way back in 1965, and somehow we'd all forgotten. I first heard of this big place with the pretty-sounding name because of a call I received from a member of the Willowbrook staff, a Dr. Michael Wilkins. The doctor told me he'd just been fired because he'd been urging parents with children in one of the buildings, building number six, to organize so they could more effectively demand improved conditions for their children. The doctor invited me to see the conditions he was talking about, so unannounced and unexpected by the school administration, we toured building number six. The doctor had warned me that it would be bad. It was horrible. There was one attendant for perhaps 50 severely and profoundly retarded children, and the children, lying on the floor naked and smeared with their own feces, they were making a pitiful sound, a kind of mournful wail that it's impossible for me to forget. This is what it looked like, this is what it sounded like, but how can I tell you about the way it smelled? It smelled of filth, it smelled of disease, and it smelled of death. So, horrific. Yes, that's the clip I always show my students. The the clip of him run, running across the field into the, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's right. it, it's it's tough to watch and and just yep. seeing the images and there it's like darkened spaces and it feels like, um, do you remember the movie, uh, the Blair Witch Project? Yeah. <laughs> so like the found video um, where they're like running through the forest and you can't really tell what's going on. And it's bouncing around. That's what it feels like. Right. It feels like mm -hmm. a horror show. And yeah. the one of the other journalists that was with her, Alda Rivera, started publishing af, you know, after that, that the interviews that they did and the material that they gathered um, over the course of about six weeks, repeatedly um more and more stories almost every day and just kept it kept hammering and kept hammering and kept hammering and that was the the moment in which all of the spotlight came on to Willowbrook and eventually over the there was a class action lawsuit by the parents claiming um, that they were their children were being neglected also claiming that they were they had enrolled their students in this school institutionalized them with under false pretenses and and they weren't being their basic needs and their basic civil rights were being violated yeah hard to argue with <laughs> yeah so question then okay <laughs> <laughs> why is this a bioethics issue why is this a case that we all teach and that we all um, we all talk about so much? Yeah, well, I think you could probably bring up Willowbrook as a you know case study in and of itself of of related to disability and the way people with disabilities are taken care of in our healthcare system in our education system. It, what you just laid out to me is bioethics enough, but the reason that it gets taught is because a group of researchers came into Willowbrook and conducted a study on the children at Willowbrook that is hard to imagine would ever happen today. Yeah. And it's that case, that, that research that they did, that really gets talked about in bioethics a lot. Right. So looking at this situation with this school, with the, the neglect and the under-resourced and these children, as many as 6,000 children lived in this institution at one point at, at its largest. So 50% more than it was built for. So overcrowding, um, really, really tough circumstances. On top of all that, there was a group of researchers who were using those children as subjects for um, human subjects research, uh, experimentation. Yeah. Uh, so another random question, Devin. Uh-huh. What's your favorite sexually transmitted disease? <laughs> <laughs> Cut that. Cut that right out of the podcast. <laughs> All right. So hepatitis. Not uh -huh. my favorite. Um, okay, but, okay. So hepatitis during World War II. So Willowbrook's history really is rooted in, in a lot of the experience of World War II, right? So during World War II, hepatitis was rampant 
Um, so as many as 50,000 uh, American troops alone contracted hepatitis at, at some point during the war. And so it was a big issue for the Surgeon General, for the Department of Defense to like figure out what is this disease, how does it transmit, like what's going on, the etiology or the epidemiology of it, right? And of course, hepatitis is not just spread through sexually transmitted <laughs> practices. Right. So did you know, this is one of the most interesting, well, one of the interesting things that we'll talk about, that we didn't know that there were two types of hepatitis. There's um, the one that's transmitted through um, like blood and um, fluids that is hepatitis B. And then there's hepatitis mm -hmm. A, which is transmitted usually through like fecal contamination. So right, like right. dirty water. So we didn't know that that was the case until Willowbrook until the Willowbrook oh, study. I didn't know that. Wait, what's hep C? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> another, another version. But, but okay. early in, so late 1940s, early 1950s, when uh, the researcher who's named Saul Krugman, him and his team, before they started their project in the 1950s, there was no um, differentiation in hepatitis. Like we knew that it, what it was, but we didn't know that there were different types. And also we didn't know what the natural course looked like from infection all the way until death, right? Um, okay. So that was, that was the research project that Krugman and his team wanted to, the questions that they wanted to answer. And through various um, personal and professional contacts, they had access to the Willowbrook School. They knew about it, knew the conditions, and decided that this would be the ideal situation in which we could study hepatitis and figure out what's going on. Why, why would this be the ideal place, Tyler? Well, well, that's a great question, Devin. Why would an institution that is rampant terribly overcrowded, um, rampant um, uh, hygiene issues and really difficult um, uh, from a people management perspective, right? So getting uh, overcrowding, all of those issues. Why would that be an ideal situation in order to test or study the the lifespan of a disease that is transmitted through poor hygiene. Yeah. I mean, off the top of my head, there are two reasons. The first is that they're probably getting it, right? So the, the people who reside at Willowbrook, if it's unsanitary, might be getting hepatitis. And so, you know, they're, they're a population we can isolate. Um, and relatedly, they live in a confined space where they're easy to control, so you can control just about every aspect of their lives because they reside in a facility and their meals are taken care of. Like everything about their daily life is controlled by the environment. So in that sense, you know, they're easy to manipulate for the purposes of research because you don't, you don't have to control for a lot of other factors that you would with somebody who doesn't live in a facility. Exactly. It's a situation in which the, the researchers have a lot of control over the variables that go that would go into the lifespan of this disease. And like you said, the infection rate for hepatitis at this institution was like unbelievable. Like everybody, like 98% of people within the first six weeks got infected with hepatitis. That's just like an unbelievable infection rate. It's, it's almost a, it's, it's like you couldn't create a, a set of circumstances in which hepatitis could be more infectious, right? It's like the ideal yeah. perfect storm for hepatitis type of infections. Mm -hmm. um, so this is interesting because the one of the reasons or one of the rationales that the researchers put forth was these children, they're coming to this, they're being entrusted in us to give them care, and they're going to get infected anyway. So let's infect them in a way that is controllable, is predictable, and maybe even we can control how much infection they get and what over what time span to help increase their immunity. Uh-huh. Yes, which is always the thing that um, horrifies my students when I first say it is they say, well, you can't give people an infection like that, right? We don't in research, give people viruses or infections or make them sick, right? And I say, well, actually, we do sometimes. But if you're going to do that, you have to have a pretty darn good reason to do it. And you're going to get it anyway? I don't know if that's the really good reason that we're looking for, <laughs> right? 
Well, it's not in and of itself a reason, although um, sometimes in, in research ethics, we talk about risk to participants being no greater than the risks they encounter in their daily lives. And so that's kind of how you want to balance risk is you don't want to put them uh, – any participation in research puts you at some level of risk. And so the only way to justify putting people at risk is – or one of the ways to justify it is to minimize it as much as you possibly can, but also compare it to the risks they take on in their everyday lives. And if in their everyday lives they're almost certain to get this anyway, you can see how that is a kind of justification for doing this. Right. And I think it's important as we talk through this and, and kind of talk about the ethical principles that were – uh, maybe violated or at least in question that we keep in mind that uh, I don't think that Saul Krugman was an evil person. I don't think that he was uh, intentionally inflicting hepatitis on children because he got some sort of perverse joy out of it. I think that he was no. a, a researcher who was trying to answer a research question and he was presented with a very unique set of circumstances and he tried to do the best he could uh, with kind of what we, he was presented. Yeah, I, I think it's you can disagree with what he did without painting him as some sort of like malicious figure. Um, I, I do question, but I, I think he had it in the, if I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, he really thought hepatitis is terrible. It's hurting a lot of people. We have a unique opportunity here to solve the hepatitis epidemic. I, I'm going to go for it. It's important to note also that this research project was not without criticism even at the time. It was That's controversial right. even at the time. One of the most important papers in bioethics and medical ethics is was written by Henry Beecher, right? We talked about this in previous episodes. In 1966, this seminal paper came out talking about um, uh, human subject research and unethical research practices. And it listed, I mean, he called out by name a number of different research projects that, that were either recent or ongoing that he would categorize as ethically problematic. And Willowbrook was one that he pointed to even in 1966. That's right. Although he also pointed out Tuskegee, right? And that didn't uh, that had been going on for quite a long time. Yes, he did. He did call out Tuskegee as well. Uh, also, hepatitis study. I mean, I tell you what, the the U.S. was committed to. No, that was a syphilis study. Oh, that's right, syphilis. <laughs> I I always get my STDs uh, mixed up. <laughs> These children didn't have STDs. <laughs> I know. Okay. All right. I know you know syphilis. Okay, help me understand, like. It's easy so it's easy to look at these studies these cases that we talk about historically and look back at them and with our uh, the I've heard the term a retrospectroscope uh, looking back in hindsight and judging them really harshly saying this was unethical that person was bad we would never do something like that today um, is that often that's not the case right now, uh, I don't know yeah help us think through that Devin yeah I, I'm Okay, well, off the top, not going to defend Willowbrook. I mean, I think what happened there was unethical, and I, I want to get into why. Um, and I, so I think, but I think actually this case, and this is why I teach it, is a little bit more complicated than maybe our gut reaction to it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the details matter, unlike um, something like Tuskegee, where I think wholly unethical, if not evil, from the get go. Yeah. There is very little really nothing in my mind to justify Tuskegee, just an evil, horrible research project that happened over the course of many decades. Willowbrook is not quite so simply bad um, for, I think, a few reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe we should do a whole separate episode on Tuskegee, because I think even though it's terribly problematic and, and there's no way to justify it, it's worth understanding the details. Because actually, most of my students, um, even a lot of people I meet do not really, like they've heard of Tuskegee, but they don't really know anything about it. So it's worth, it's worth, it's worth going through the worst cases um, to, to know what we really have learned from them. Yeah. This though, I think I teach it as actually a pretty complicated case. Um, how do you, is that how you teach it as complicated or is it just obviously bad? No, yeah, it's it's complicated. I generally use it uh, to talk about disability, uh, like public policy changes, and how it, it was a catalyst to some of this, the like the Americans with Disabilities Act, and like all of those mm -hmm. things. So that's generally how it comes across in my material. But um, I also don't teach like an entry level bioethics class right now. But where where I would teach uh, yeah. it more like you, know, the details 
of this case and some of the anecdotes and kind of the the colorful little uh, descriptions that come out um, are just so emotionally evocative, right? Like when they talk about the way in which, so we we said that they intentionally administered hepatitis to children. Uh, They did it. They had them eat it, right? Right. They they put it in their chocolate milk and fed it to them, right? And so you hear about a contaminated chocolate milk being fed to a disabled child in an institution and like, you know, we're ready to fight somebody, right? Um, right. But I think it's important to, to help us walk through the nuance of it. Okay. So when I talk about it with my students, here's how it, it the time was justified. Um, and actually, I'm taking some of this from, we have a, a former professor that taught us at SLU, um, Jim Dubois. Oh, yes. Who's now at Washington University. Um and he has a really good paper on this where he's actually just talking about research ethics in general, but uses Willowbrook as a case study to think through the kind of principles of research ethics that are slightly different than clinical ethics. Um, and the big difference, of course, being that in clinical ethics, we're always thinking about the good of the patient. But in research ethics, the primary goal is not the good of the subject. The, the purpose of research is to create generalizable knowledge that can benefit society. And so we're asking individuals to take on risk to themselves for the benefit of future people. And so we have different principles insofar as, um, you know, we're not really at all benefiting the individual. If we do, usually it's just by happenstance or if it turns out the research works. Um, but that's, we can't assume that. We can't assume that, you know, the research project is going to yield some sort of result like a vaccine. There's a term for that, right? It's it's the uh, therapeutic misconception, exactly. right? Yeah. And, and this idea that you're going into the research study, and we hear this all the time with like cancer patients doing experimental, going into a research protocol should be with the intention of benefiting science, right? Mm-hmm. If you individually benefit, that's great, but that should be the primary motivation. And if it is, right. there's a misconception about that. And that's where that term comes from. So Right, right. It's really hard to get rid of that. So people think, oh, sure, 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 future people, but also maybe me. Right. Um, and it's hard to get rid of that. But mm-hmm. we, tr- we try to minimize that. Um, okay. So uh, Duabo lays out four, um, actually five principles that you should consider in research ethics and how they apply to Willowbrook. Mm -hmm. Um, The first is this idea of necessity. So is it necessary to infringe on the values or norms of one population for the intended goal um, of the future population? So in other words, can we use these children, can we infringe on their values and norms um, or or their, you know, kind of person uh, bodily integrity, I might say, uh, for the benefit of a, of a future population. And it has been suggested that, you know, because they're children, that leaves them in a vulnerable state. And the obvious response to that is, why wouldn't they just use a population of adults? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that hepatitis is way more lethal in adults than it is in children. In fact, most children will do okay um, which isn't to say children never die of hepatitis, but this particular strand of hepatitis is uh, way riskier for adults. And so I, children are a better population. Can we infringe on you know, the, the norms of this particular population? You justify that by saying, actually, it's way less risky for children than adults. So in that situation, the child population or the pediatric research population is actually scientifically a... Um, it, there's less harm associated with doing the research in that population versus an adult population. So for that reason, it, it might make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So the population in that sense that to use them instead of adults makes sense. So you would, of course, always have to justify why children and not adults mm-hmm. um, because children can't give informed consent. And so we always want to make sure um, that we're using adults if we can. Um, but insofar as adults are much more likely to become seriously ill from hepatitis than children, children are actually a much safer population to do a project like this on. The second principle is effectiveness. So this is, this one's a little complicated, like how much evidence do we have that the research will yield positive results? So we cannot, we absolutely cannot know the future. Most research will not yield something like a vaccine. Most research fails to find or produce the thing that it intends to. Um, can have a whole conversation about like the pharmaceutical industry and why drugs cost so much, but 
they always say that this is part of the reason is that most of these drug trials will fail. And it's not just limited to drug research, right? This is all right. research. The all vast research. majority of all science research does not right, result in the outcome that was expected or anticipated or hoped for. Right. But that doesn't mean then that we can just say, yeah, go ahead and try. Most things fail. It's fine. You have to have really good reasons to think that the thing you're testing for will result in something positive, that it has like scientific merit to it, that you haven't jumped from, you know, theory to children, Mm -hmm. right? So you have to do some animal studies, you have to go through the process of um, the phases of human subjects research. And so you have to have a pretty good reason to think that the thing you're doing will be effective, even if you can't know that for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And the justification from these researchers was, you know, they had done animal trials, they had done a few smaller population trials, but also that vaccines were booming in the 60s. And so there was real optimism that these researchers, you know, they had the tools and vaccines were becoming so viable um, that this really could yield an effective vaccine. So there was great optimism about that. The third principle is proportionality. So is the desired goal important enough to just to justify, you know, the potential risks and harms to the population you're testing on? So you wouldn't give um, these children hepatitis if hepatitis, you know, wasn't really a big deal. Like very few people ever got it. Um, It wasn't really hurting anybody. You don't do it. You don't do research for the sake of research. You do it because it's a you're researching something for the public good. And the risks, the more risks you put um, on participants, the more important that becomes. Um, So if you're you got to be researching something pretty darn important to infect children with hepatitis. Yeah. But their rationale, like you said, is hepatitis is really bad at this time. There is a huge population dying of hepatitis. A vaccine is really important. And so it was justified. The the proportion seems justified. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense too. The fourth principle is least infringement. So are you doing everything you can to minimize the infringements or the the risks to the participants? And Dr. Krugman and colleagues said, you know, we're doing everything we can. They're not responsible. This is a kind of different argument. They're not responsible for cleaning up Willowbrook, right? That That's not what their job is. And they wouldn't necessarily even know how to do that as researchers, as vaccine researchers. But they were putting these children in a special wing of Willowbrook. They were uh, cleaning up their hygiene in, by all accounts, the children in their research wing were better off than the children in the in the rest of Willowbrook. So that's how they justified um, sort of minimizing risk, is that these children were not in any more risk. And in fact, maybe were at less risk in their everyday lives for all sorts of things than the children who resided in Willowbrook who were not part of the research study. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sought parental permission. So it's, of course, children... And especially these children can't give informed consent, but they did seek it through their parents. I'm glad that you brought up the informed consent issue because that, to me, that that's one of the things that sticks in my mind as being, okay, this isn't just researchers who were in a... F- unusual situation made questionable decisions maybe they compounded and resulted in this like bad situation it's the informed consent thing that i have a hard time getting around okay (laughs) okay okay so say more (laughs) yeah um so like i said earlier there was this advertising campaign this um promotional um effort to get people to come into the institution right so there was this waiting list krugman and his friends krugman et al actually used that as a a way to entice people to uh participate in the research and so um i was able to find uh, an old a copy of one of the original informed consent documents so let me send that to you i want you to take a look at it and maybe read read it out loud and, and um, tell us what you think about it. Okay. Wow, I can't believe you found this. <laughs> so the date on this is November 14th, 1958. Dear, and it's blanked out. Redacted. It redacted. Um, hepatitis is an illness characterized by abdominal symptoms, fever, jaundice, and general malaise. It is more severe in adults than in children. It is caused by a virus spread from person to person. Okay, so far so good. So far so Very, good. Like, good eighth grade, you know, reading level language. In cooperation with the pediatric staff of New York University Bellevue Medical Center. So this was the fifth principle, just to say, you have to go through the proper process. They did, they got approval to do this study. Um, 
So in collaboration with the pediatric staff, we are studying the possibility of preventing epidemics of hepatitis on a new principle. Virus is introduced and gamma globulin given later to some so that either no attack or only a mild attack of hepatitis is expected to follow. This may give the child immunity against this disease for life. Woohoo! Uh, it doesn't say that. I added that. Um, we, <laughs> we should like to give to your child, redacted, this new form of prevention with the hope that it will afford protection. Permission form is enclosed for your consideration. If you wish to have your child given the benefit of this new preventative, will you so signify by signing the form, having it witnessed and returning it to me at your earliest convenience? Wow. So that's... Uh, and. Yeah, and so the subtext of this is if you do this and sign this permission slip, then you will have a favored place on the waiting list. You'll be able to get admission. So what are your thoughts? So a couple of thoughts. Um, This is one of the huge criticisms of this study, and I think one that is really important, is that if you're on a waiting list and enrolling your child in research gets you into the facility that you've been waiting for, that sounds to me like an undue inducement, Okay, meaning... Um, you might not have enrolled your child in this study, but you got the huge benefit of getting them some other good. Um, and that probably manipulated whether or not you wanted to enroll them in the research. So you're, be- you're being pressured, you're being manipulated in some way in taking a risk or putting your child at risk in a way in which you wouldn't otherwise do, right? Right, right. You might not have said yes, but for this, and in that sense, we don't want to, you know, pressures may be a good word because it's not necessarily coercing anyone. Um, Sometimes we use that word coercion. I think it's too strong um, in many cases. Something like pressure or, you know, the, the technical term is undue influence, which can mean a lot of things. It could mean like if I said, I'll pay you a million dollars to do this study, you'd be like, uh, okay, sign me up. <laughs> and you probably wouldn't even read the potential risks. Yeah. Um, so maybe undo it influence, but also like it, even though it's very like straightforward in a lot of ways, it also kind of conceals what's really happening. Like it doesn't outright say we're going to feed your child this virus. I, at least to me, it's not. I'd have to read it a couple times to get that from this. And I don't think you would ever get that to that. Right? <laughs> and so it says this virus is introduced right. and gamma globulin given later to some. Right. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily. It's not clear that that means I will feed it to your child through their chocolate milk. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, the the phrase to some causes concern. Right. I mean, if it's a double blinded study, I mean, if there's a control group, I mean, all of these questions that we would ask now about. Wait a second. So the gamma is what the treatment that you think is going to be better than what's going on. But only some of those children are going to get it. OK. Yeah. So who gets it? Who doesn't get it? Yeah. Like what happens if my child is in a group that doesn't get it? Will they eventually get it? Yeah. Well, these are all questions that I'm sure are addressed in the appendix that comes with this letter. <laughs> uh, no, oh. <laughs> that's not the case. Um, yeah. And so I think um, so informed consent, the vulnerability of the patients, um, the 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 situation at Willowbrook, how it was really, really um, terrible, horrific at the time that this research project was going on. Like all of these things kind of coalesced into this perfect storm of uh, this, this things, uh, things did not go right in this situation. So what Dubois and actually I think I. I don't think. I definitely agree with him. Well, let me sort of back up a second. When I do this case with my students, they can actually usually come to those five prima facie principles. And so we chart it. I have them do this sort of mind map where they're they're trying to connect these facts with values and, and whether or not this is an ethical research or not. And they'll have a lot of lines, actually, that go toward, yes, this is ethical. In fact, more lines that say this is ethical, and they'll only have a couple of lines that go toward the idea that this is unethical. And the two lines are, you know, the what we just said about the informed consent being not great. The second is this idea of vulnerability. Um, it's triple vulnerability. They're children. Children are more vulnerable. They're disabled. Um, so intellectual disabilities make people more vulnerable um, to certain kinds of research and they're institutionalized. So that's that's three kinds of vulnerability. And 
so you can't imagine really, I can't imagine a more vulnerable population than the children at Willowbrook. And so to choose them needs a huge justification. And to my mind, the only way today, so this is pre-common rule, which is the the current federal regulations that tell us about ethics and research, and it talks about vulnerability in particular. So today we would say the only way to justify doing any research on that population would be that um, they are really singularly the only population having the problem being researched and that the benefits would only accrue to them. That is definitely not the case. We have a huge population that can serve as potential subjects because it's a huge general population that can get hepatitis. So they're not singular in their they might be singular in like it's the perfect storm to get hepatitis, but not, they're not the only ones who can. And so it's you can't justify using them, this extremely vulnerable population, to accrue benefits to a much larger population that includes them but is not singularly mm-hmm. them. And that's to me the only way you could plausibly do this research. And I think that's hard for people who kind of don't get into the weeds about research ethics to to, to start to wrap your head around is like th- there are situations in which this population in this setting um, can can not only participate but be the beneficiaries of research um, but this just wasn't the case right this wasn't right. <laughs> this, this was more um, a situation where this population was chosen because of convenience and not because of this is the, the science was driving the selection of this population yeah I, I think ultimately you can say that and so it's not quite as clear as like this was the he was just you know trying to prey on this vulnerable population because he could and it was mere convenience he had other reasons but ultimately I don't think those reasons were good enough to use this population Krugman went to his his uh, his coffin his deathbed um, arguing that he did nothing wrong and that they followed all of the the ethical principles and it was justifiable and there were notably notably good uh, quote unquote good outcomes I guess um, so we talked about earlier the the actual science the understanding of the physiology, the pathophysiology, and the process of the disease itself, we learned a lot from Willowbrook. Yeah. Well, they came up with a vaccine, right? So, you know, they they were able to do the thing that they set out to do, which is in itself incredible. It doesn't post facto justify what they did to the subjects. Yeah. We, we, we get this question a lot when we start talking about some of the research experiments that were done, quote unquote, research experiments, the human experimentation done during World War II by Nazi doctors and, and um, you know, physicians in other parts of other countries as well. There are some things that science has learned from those studies, but that doesn't retrospectively justify what happened to those people, right? And we can Absolutely still not. even u- we can still use that scientific knowledge uh, to continue kind of the our understanding of of humans and science and and medicine without also having to accept the way in which we got that information, right? Is that how you approach that? I you know, I actually leave it up to my students to decide because I'm I think there are still maybe good reasons to throw it out even if it can save lives. I mean, like apparently every almost everything we know about hypothermia was done um, by the Nazis in the I've most terrible that, yeah. ways. And it's still the kind of no- the only knowledge we have because you just can't like let somebody almost die from hypothermia like as part of your research anymore. And so it's really hard to replicate those studies in an ethical way. But I, I think it's for me still kind of I feel pretty conflicted. We would say today if it turns out that your research was not done in an ethical way, it will not be published or it will be retracted. And so we do actually take away that knowledge in some ways. So if you were to do any of that stuff today, we wouldn't use it. Um, right. So why is it okay that we, you, you know, the, the Holocaust wasn't that long ago, you know, what the Nazis were doing, the Nuremberg trials were not that long ago. Where do you draw the line? I think is for me still, I still am pretty conflicted about it. I thought I had a good answer to this until we we hear it um, at my school we hosted a woman who was one of the last surviving last survivors of Mengele's actually her tw- the twin medical experimentation so she was one of the twins wow. and so she came and visited and and she's a really powerful woman um, 
uh, talked about her experience. And, and so she she was in, I can't remember if it was Auschwitz or Dachau, but she was one of the concentration camps. She like interacted with Mengele. She had a twin sister who received different treatment, like experimentation than she did. And, um, and so she talked about this experience. And I was sitting next to uh, a woman who is in our department who has, uh, who is Jewish by background and uh, bioethicist, really well read, really insightful. I after after the media after the the lecture, I asked um, Eva Moses Kor, who was the woman who was visiting, or one of the maybe it was one of the um, the audience member, asked her this question, like, "What do we do with this knowledge that came?" And her response was, um, "If we don't do something with that information that came out of these experimentations, then we're dishonoring the legacy of people who who had to go through that, right?" And it was very very much in the in the spirit of like forgiveness and moving forward and reconciliation. And I was sitting next to this other woman, and she leaned over and she said, "I." Can completely disagree with that. She said it has to be the only way to honor those people is to suppress it and to not like build upon that foundation. And so I was like, gosh, I mean, these two really eloquent, (laughs) smart, like invested people coming to very different conclusions for kind of the same reasons. Um, I was like, I don't know, this this is this is why ethics is so interesting and so hard and so complicated and um, changing, I guess. And that's why we love this field is because there aren't easy answers. Yes. In fact, there are no easy answers. <laughs> Trademark. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's Willowbrook. Um, what else? Anything else that we missed? Um, you know, any nuggets or tidbits that uh, you impart upon your students when you're covering Willowbrook? No. I mean, I think what I want my students to really get out of the exercise of going through is to say there might be 20 plausible reasons why something like this is ethical and only really one or two reasons why it's unethical. But those reasons are so strong that they outweigh all of the other reasons. And that's okay. So it's good to dissect the case. It's good to think through the ethics of it. At the end of the day, there might just be one ethical principle that it is too weighty. Mm-hmm. It, it, weigh, it outweighs all all the other justifications and and that's okay and that's some that's why i teach the case i mean there are actually a lot of reasons i teach the case because i also do disability rights and disability history so it's important this is an important moment there um but it's also to show my students that it's on balance you don't have to say oh there are six reasons why this is ethical seven reasons why it's unethical so therefore you know one no some principles are more weighty than other principles yeah, and that gets into the even bigger questions of how do we weigh different ethical principles against each other, right? And so, yeah, um, yeah that's some of the gray area that we love in bioethics. So Yes, we do. <laughs> All right, thanks, Tyler. That's a yeah. good one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. We can't do this podcast by ourselves. We've tried, and it's not pretty. Our team includes our research interns, Michaela Kim, Madison Foley, and Macy Hutto. Special thanks to Helen Webster for social media and production support. Our theme music was created and performed by the talented Chris Wright, friend to all, dad to two, and husband to one. Podcast art was created by Darian Goldenstall. You can find more of her work at dariangoldenstall.com. You can find more information about this episode and all of our previous seasons at bioethicsforthepeople.com. We love to connect with our listeners. All of our episodes can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and share, and connect on social media. 